thank you, Randy, Tara, and team for leading us into worship through song. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, I was all prepared to come up here and say, uh, spring is here, right? This is a great time of year. And then snow. Snow, it just seems like every Sunday we've gotten snow on the ground. But it's sunny. It's March Madness season, which is exciting, right? Uh, KU fans, I'm going to keep my eye on you today because... Well, actually, I think all the KU fans are probably here first hour so they can catch the game. Uh, but seriously, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Andrew Campbell. I'm the newest pastoral fellow here at Christ Community, an associate pastor serving primarily here at the Leewood campus. Uh, my wife, Beth, and I uh, lived in Kansas City for two years and attended this campus. There she is uh, with me in our K-State purple. Uh, we Yes! Wow, that's amazing. I love that. That's great. I mean, I was a little bummed on Friday. Uh, it's, it's okay. It was a good showing. Uh, we both graduated from K-State, moved here uh, right after school, and settled here at the Leewood campus. So this is our home. Uh, has been for a little while. Uh, I, was ex- I actually got the chance to go to the games on Friday, which was really a good time. I got to go with my father-in-law and brother-in-law. Uh, we enjoyed the day for the most part on our way in. Uh, We stopped at a barbecue place right outside the arena called Joe Buck's. It was a good place for lunch. And as we're finishing, the waitress brought out our checks separately, handed them to each of us. And my father-in-law insisted, as he always does, insisted that I hand my check over to him and let him pay for my meal. And I know that resistance is futile with my father-in-law. We could, you know, we could go through this song and dance that I'm sure many of you are very familiar with, you know, this yeah, you know, yo, no, you don't have to pay. No, but I really want to. Okay, fine, but, you know, I'll get you back next time, right? This, I'm sure you've, we've all been on, on both sides of that kind of awkward exchange, especially for the waitress, poor thing. You know, she has no idea who to take the money from. But it re- was really my knee-jerk reaction, this, you know, no, let me pay for my own meal. Why do we protest like this when someone tries to do something nice for us? Why do we hate it when someone else tries to pay for our bill? Have you ever thought about that in the middle of that little argument? Have you ever thought about why we have this response? Maybe it's because we think, you know, I don't need any handouts. I don't need your charity. I work hard for what I have. I can take care of myself. Maybe the minute somebody pays, you're already thinking of, a way that you can pay them back. You're already thinking of the next thing that you're going to do to make sure that the the score is settled. Or maybe you think to yourself, yeah, they should pay, right? Like, I do all these nice things for them. It's it's about time that they return the favor. There are a number of reactions that we might have to someone doing something nice for us, like paying for a meal. And I'd like to suggest that we react this way because we really hate to be in debt to someone, even when we know they're acting purely out of the kindness of, of their heart. It, it drives us crazy to know that we owe someone something. We feel the need to pay them back. We can't even enjoy the good news that there's nothing to pay, right? Because we're already thinking of ways that we will balance the, the account, balance the, the balance sheet, if you will. Now think with me about this a little bit more deeply. Do we do this in our relationship with God, too? Is there a debt that you and I try to pay off 
to make all things square? If so, and I, I think that's true, how do, we, how do we try to do that? Last week, Kevin made the case that justice always means that someone has to pay. And that's true. We feel it. Scripture teaches it. When there's a death that must be settled, someone has to make the payment. And there's good news in Hebrews 10 for us this morning. And it's this. There's nothing left to pay. There's nothing left to pay. The author gives us a simple roadmap that we'll follow this morning. We'll see there's a problem, a solution to that problem, and an outcome. A problem, a solution, and the outcome. So let's go before God in prayer before this time, and we'll jump right in. God, we thank you that we can find our rest in you. Rock of ages. We ask that you would that your spirit would do a work in our hearts this morning as we hear your word. God, I pray that anything that I say that is of me would be quickly forgotten, but that where you speak your words, where I speak your words after you, Lord, I pray that they would be transformative, that our hearts would be open to to hearing and receiving your word, that we would be changed and made more into the image of your Son, this morning. Thank you for your love and grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 10, whether in electronic form or paper, not to your March Madness app, to your Bible app, Hebrews chapter 10. We've been in this glorious letter for about 12 weeks now, and remember that this is actually a sermon that was circulated as a letter in the first century Jewish Christian churches, but the central message that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. A couple weeks ago, we encountered that mysterious character Melchizedek in chapter 7 and saw that Jesus is our better advocate. Remember, we all need a good lawyer. Jesus is our better advocate. Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus mediates a better covenant, making the old plan obsolete in much the same way that CDs when you listen to music, make an 8-track or an LP obsolete, or you know, a vinyl, unless you're a hipster. It's coming back. Listening to vinyl is coming back. As we come to 10 verse 1, we face again the inadequacy of the old covenant. And here's where we see the problem. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." The Old Covenant, with its laws and ritual practices, isn't fit to deal with sin permanently. And we see this in two ways, in two specific ways in this text. First, it can't make anyone whole or perfect. A perfect perfection here in this passage is not so much a a lack of flaws or, or, or what we sometimes usually think of perfection as, but it's more this idea of wholeness, of completion, of 
accomplished. It's an accomplished work. The Old Covenant couldn't actually change the hearts of those who would draw near to God in worship. Now, why is that? Well, because it's only a shadow. It isn't the real deal. We see that here in verse 1. We've encountered this language before already in Hebrews in chapters 8 and 9. This Old Covenant is a copy, a shadow. It's given here as the reason that continual sacrifices could never affect real permanent change. In fact, the sacrificial system wasn't meant to perfect the worshiper. It serves as a pointer ahead. It foreshadows the real deal that's to come. It also can't take away guilt, can't remove sin, consciousness of sin. Your version might say awareness of sin. Guilt here is not as much a matter of feeling bad for sin, but it's, it's the burden, the obstacle, this, the wrong done that keeps one from being in right relationship with God, from drawing near to him in worship. Instead of taking away guilt, the old sacrificial system actually heightened awareness of sin. It served as a reminder, you can see that in your text, between God and humanity. The very work of trying to atone for sin is a painful reminder of how vast the gap is between us and a holy God. As long as a sense of sin and guilt before God remains, there can be no true intimate relationship with God or with others. Think about the way that financial debt affects your relationships, especially if you know that you can't pay. Think of if you owe a family member a large sum of money that you know you can't pay. There's no way that that debt, that burden, doesn't affect your relationship. I found this to be true in my own relationships, particularly in marriage. It's nearly impossible for Beth and I to be close. If I'm carrying a weight of sin, of something that I've done wrong, either against her or sometimes even just when I've sinned egregiously against God. True intimacy isn't possible. That guilt needs to be taken care of. Remember, justice means that someone always has to pay. The text says that the blood of bulls and goats can't remove the guilt and the stain of sin. See it there in verse 4. It can't cover the cost or close the gap. We live in a digital age, right, where paper, this stuff, seems like it's becoming obsolete pretty quickly. I'm actually preaching from an iPad. That kind of shows. It's paper, you know, it's, it's still got its uses, but it feels like it's a thing of the past in some ways. When I was a kid, even in the middle school and high school, if you had a writing assignment, you know, you'd sometimes complete that with paper and ink, right? And when you made a mistake in this, when you're writing an essay, what is it that you would reach for? Anyone? Whiteout, you got it. So you'd reach for that whiteout to make sure that you'd, you know, that mistake was covered up and then you could move forward. A little dab of that stuff, a little, right? A couple seconds and you're ready to go. Now it certainly wasn't the perfect fix, but it allowed you to finish the paper and turn it in without a mark against you, without getting without getting wrong that mistake, without being downgraded. And the mistake is still there on the paper, right? The whiteout doesn't remove the mistake. It just covers, covers it up and makes progress possible. And so it is with the old way of dealing with sin and the sacrificial system. 
The sacrifices of the old plan couldn't change the heart or completely remove the guilt. We may not practice ritual sacrifice, thankfully, here in church, in our context, for the payment of sin, but I think we still try to make atonement for the things that we've done wrong. How do we do this? How are you and I trying to pay for the pay the price for our sin, for our guilt? Think about that for a second. Maybe that's why you're here in church this morning. Because it's one of those good things that you can do to make the scales tip in your favor, to be right with God. Maybe you're always looking for ways that you can help others in hopes that your service will make up somehow for the wrong that you've committed. Maybe it's with your pocketbook, right? You give and you give and you give in order to build your case before God. Maybe it's some other intrinsically good thing. These are all good things, right? Maybe it's some other good thing that you offer at the altar as payment for your sin. How's that going for you? I can tell you this. It doesn't usually go well for me. Usually I become either puffed up with pride when I think that I'm actually doing it, when I think that I'm succeeding in tipping the scales in my favor, or I sink down into despair when it hits me, when reality sets in. I, I can't do this. I can't keep this up. Or I've just messed up again. In, in the act of trying to pay for my sin, I'm sinning. It's just like C.S. Lewis said, and I know we quote C.S. Lewis a lot. You've probably even heard this one, but it's good here. It's, I couldn't pass it up. He says, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. Man, that is true. I feel the, the weight of that. I'm really working hard to gain good standing before God. On my own merit, it's a miserable existence. I can't do it. You can't do it. The price is too high. The cost is too steep. We just finished singing about the price of sin and the demands of the law and that great hymn, Rock of Ages. The lyrics should be back up on the screen. It says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? This zealous working for my right standing. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. This is a major problem. Our sin, it's a big problem. It's the major problem, in fact. You and I can't pay for our sin, whether through costly sacrifice or zealous devotion or even remorseful tears. None of those things can pay for sin. There's only one way to decisively remove guilt and make full access to God possible. And it's right there in the last line of the verse, which brings us to our second point. Thou must save, and thou alone. The solution is found in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He must save. He alone can do it. Because of the sacrifice that he has made, there's nothing left to pay. The debt has been settled. Jesus paid it all. This truth is what sets Christianity apart from every other religious set of beliefs or practices. We have a God who demands blood and offers his own. Look with me at verse 8. 
where the author begins his commentary on verses 5 through 7, which he quotes from Psalm 40. It says, when he said above, and notice the author attributes these words to Christ himself, said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God himself was dissatisfied with sacrifices and offerings, which were many in number. I don't, I'm sure many of you have read Leviticus. It's, there's a lot in there, right? There's this, this way of becoming right before God, the way God could be approached ceremonially, it was, it was specific. There were certain prescribed ways that, we could, that you could come before God. And if you didn't follow those, disaster would result. So the text says he does away with this old way of taking care of sin to establish something better. In fact, the language this does away with is stronger than that. It's, it's more like he destroyed the first, this first way. But what does he establish instead? The preacher here shows us that offerings have been set aside in favor of heart obedience. The shift from the old covenant to the new is a shift from offerings to obedience. And the offering that God finds truly pleasing and acceptable is a life devoted to him in faithful obedience. And Jesus lived this out perfectly, right? He was perfectly obedient. In the sacrifice of his body on the cross, Christ freely and fully made the will of God his own. Jesus was perfectly obedient, and he has offered the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, his own body, his own precious blood. Jesus made the payment that we could never make. That's it. There's nothing left to pay. We see the finality of Christ's sacrifice most clearly there in verses 11 and 12, where the author contrasts the Levitical priesthood to the the ministry of Jesus as the great high priest. So notice the differences. You can see the temporary, ongoing, unfinished nature of the Levitical priesthood. They stand daily in service, multiple offerings that cannot remove sins. We see Jesus' single sacrifice is good for all time. And notice, I love it, he's seated at the right hand of God. The work is finished. It's been accomplished. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in the message paraphrase. He says, It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. The outcome of Christ's sacrifice, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, the outcome corresponds directly with the inadequacies of inadequacies of the old covenant that we see in verses 1 through 4. Look at verse 14 there. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So first we've been made whole. That's what, right, that's what the, the old covenant couldn't do. We've been made whole, perfected for all time. Jesus' sacrifice has done in us what the old plan could not. Indeed, what the old plan wasn't intended to do. It isn't like God has gotten you halfway there and now it's up to you to work out your rightness before him. It's 
not how it works. He's done it all. Decisively, completely, lovingly. You've been made whole, complete and perfect. And it's out of that accomplished work that you can continue to grow into Christ's likeness. Heart obedience has been made possible for you. The new covenant works from the inside out. The author supports this point with another quote from, old, from the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31. Pick it up in verse 15. It says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. God's will is written on the hearts and minds of his people. And this is truth. For those of us who have trusted Christ, this is true. But if you're anything like me, you don't always feel like this is the case, right? We don't feel whole, like God's will in some way has been engraved on our hearts. We feel broken, incomplete, stained even. But remember that growth is a process The ongoing work of sanctification, this being made whole, is rooted in something that's already been accomplished. It's already and not yet, this great paradox of the Christian faith and life. It's already and not yet. You are blameless before God because Christ is blameless. And yet, the pursuit for holiness continues. The Apostle Paul articulates this beautifully in Colossians 1 says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Blameless, above reproach, free of accusation, the NIV says. This is sweet news, friends. This is the gospel message. Not only have we been made whole, but we have been forgiven. Jesus' sacrifice has done for us what we could not do, what the old plan could not do. Let's finish reading the passage, picking it up in verse 17. It says, Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For there is forgiveness of these. There is no longer any offering for sin. Sometimes we talk about forgiveness in terms of forgive and forget, right? There's This forgive and forget. Like forgiveness involves some sort of amnesia or memory loss or something. The author quotes this text, I will remember their sins no more, which sounds an awful lot like forgetting, but I think there's a helpful distinction to make here. Forgetting is a passive action. You you don't really have to do much to forget something. (laughs) Happens all the time. Some people are just forgetful. Information escapes them. But we know that God isn't like this. Remember that? Well, not remembering is different from forgetting. Not remembering is an active thing. It's God deciding not to take action on something. Remember that essay full of mistakes, covered in whiteout? It's gone. Not only have the individual mistakes been fixed, but we get to hand in an entirely different essay, one that's been written from the beginning perfectly free of mistakes. An old essay is forgotten, or better, not remembered. Christ's sacrifice 
is the once-for-all payment for sin that satisfies God's justice. Someone had to pay, and God, God himself made the payment. He chooses not to act on sin that's been covered by the blood of Jesus. There's nothing left to pay. But we don't always feel forgiven, do we? We feel sinful, guilty, condemned even. Can you relate to that this morning? You know in your head maybe that you've been forgiven, that the price has been paid in full, and there's nothing you can add or take away that will change the sufficiency of that payment. But you don't feel it. You don't feel like you're forgiven. You have a hard time really believing that God has forgiven you of the debt. Your experience before God is loaded with guilt and shame, not forgiveness. Some of you may be thinking, if you only knew about the things in my past that I did last year, last week, last night even, you wouldn't say that I'm forgiven. I don't buy it. Maybe some of you are thinking right now, well, that sure isn't me. I'm, I'm actually doing pretty good. Thank you very much. I'm not really sure that there's much that I need forgiveness for, to be honest. I've been greatly helped by the author Jerry Bridges in my own faith journey, and I think this quote from his book, The Discipline of Grace, is really helpful at this point. He says, Pharisee-type believers unconsciously think that they have earned God's blessing through their behavior. Guilt-laden believers are quite sure they have forfeited God's blessing through their lack of discipline or their disobedience. Both have forgotten the meaning of grace because they have moved away from the gospel and have slipped into a performance relationship with God. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace, and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. I hope you hear that in this passage this morning. You need not despair or dare not be proud when you draw near to God. Because He can save. He can save. There's no need for despair. But He alone can save. There's no room for pride when we draw near to the throne of God. He has done so he has done this saving work in Christ. Jesus is the solution to the problem, and his sacrifice makes us whole and secures our right standing before God. This is the good news of the gospel, and as we say often here, the gospel presses in. It speaks into every nook and cranny of our lives. So let's, let's press in just a little bit for these last few moments and see how this is true. If you're anything like me, you have a hard time truly experiencing freedom from guilt and shame. To struggle, to feel God's forgiveness because your guilt feels like an obstacle between you and God. But God already knows your stuff. He knows all of it. So confess your sin and your guilt to God. Voice it before him. It's already been paid for, remember? You can confess it to him. You're thinking, Andrew, I've tried that. I've, I've said, I've confessed my sin to God. I don't really know if he hears me. I don't really know if I'm forgiven. I don't know if any of you have done that, but I've, 
confessed sin and thought, well, I hope. I hope he heard that. I hope I'm forgiven. So don't stop there. Confess your sin to a trusted, a trusted brother or sister in Christ. We are the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus. And I'm convinced that confession of sin to one another is a powerful means by which God intends for his people to experience this forgiveness that we have in Christ. I know that the burden of guilt and shame have been lifted in my own life through confession of sin. Not completely, not perfectly, but powerfully. Maybe it's a close friend or a family member. Maybe even someone in your community group that you can confess this sin to. Find someone you can confide in who can help you with this final encouragement. That's to receive the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. Forgiveness came at a high price. Someone had to pay for your sin, and Jesus did it. There's nothing left to pay. Stop trying to make atonement for sin that's already been dealt with. Don't respond to God's grace in the way that I did with with my father-in-law trying to do something nice for me. Receive it freely with gratitude and allow it to do a work in you that changes you from the inside out. We're going to spend a few moments now in reflection. I'd encourage you to to examine your own heart and just take, take some time in personal confession before God. If you haven't yet placed your trust in Christ's perfect sacrifice on your behalf, what is it that's holding you back this morning? What's keeping you from believing that his payment for your guilt is enough to make you right with God, to make you whole? For those of you who have, how are you trying to pay for what's already been settled? Maybe you're struggling to draw near to God because of some sin that just needs to be confessed. Wherever you are in your faith journey this morning, receive the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. There's nothing left to pay. You've been forgiven. So take a few moments in reflection and examination and confession before God. Father, we confess our need to be forgiven. Instead of trusting in the death of Jesus, we tried to work off our guilt, tried to pile up good deeds that outweigh our sins. Instead of trusting in the perfect sacrifice of Christ, we tried to change through our own efforts. This has left some of us arrogant and prideful, others of us anxious, hopeless, despairing, Forgive us for neglecting your grace that's free. We know that your blood was spilled on the cross as the perfect sacrifice to make us blameless and pure. Sin's double cure to save us from wrath and make us pure. People set apart to do your will. Thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.